Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. John, I just need to mention we've actually reached a milestone of sorts. This is our 100th episode of this podcast. So uh, thanks to you for hanging in there for 100 episodes. And thanks to you, our listeners, uh, wherever you're doing it, on your jogs, on your Saturday morning cappuccinos, or wherever. Well, Lewis, it's been fun, and I hope our readers have enjoyed it. Anyway, we have enjoyed it. And uh, this week, also, we got a, a packed agenda. California's Senator Kamala Harris and presidential candidate announced a proposal to raise the base pay of every teacher in the United States by an average of $13,500. That wouldn't come cheap. It would cost $315 billion over 10 years. The plan would reshape the federal government's funding relationship with states. And we'll speak with two authorities on education for their perspectives, former State Board of Education President Mike Kirst and Dan Goldhaber, a professor at the University of Washington who has been following California education very closely. And I'll review new and really interesting developments in the running debate over whether to let school districts give the SAT or ACT as their 11th grade standardized test instead of the Smarter Balanced. And speaking of the SAT, the state legislature, or at least several legislators, introduced a half dozen bills in response to the college admissions bribery scandal. And interestingly, their efforts are targeted not only at the state's public universities, which is usually what the legislature tries to uh, have an impact on, but also private universities. Really interesting developments. But first, Lewis, you wrote about Senator Harris's plan this week in detail. So tell us how her plan would work. Well, she is trying to address a huge issue in California nationally, and and it's really come to the fore with teacher strikes in many so-called red states, but also more recently in California with Oakland and L.A. unified big strikes, and one of the issues was the level of compensation for teachers. So Senator Harris's plan is very ambitious. The federal government would cough up the first 10% of this pay gap, As Senator Harris puts it, that's the gap between what teachers are earning and what other comparable professionals in the job market are making. And then the states would be asked to contribute funds. And for every dollar that the states put in, the federal government would come in with $3. But once the states started on this, they would have to commit to doing this in perpetuity, it sounds like. Well, it'd be really not only ambitious, but it would be a new development for the federal government to get so involved in what is a basic expense of schools. Yeah, and and of course, this is all a big if related to this. I mean, first of all, Kamala Harris has to get elected president, and then she has to present this to Congress, and then we have to see what Congress would do. But uh, we thought it was worth looking at, and uh, we thought we would turn to Mike Kirst, who many of you know was the president of the California State Board of Education until last December, to get his thoughts on the historical context for Senator Harris's proposal. And I think, as many of you might not know, Mike was actually in the Office of Education in the 1960s and helped shape the federal Title I program, which to this day is the largest education funding program in the United States. Well, the context is that the last time we talked about this kind of a bold proposal 
was in 1961 when President Kennedy proposed what's called general aid to school districts, aid that goes for general purposes like salaries, construction, and those uh, sorts of things. And Kennedy could never get it through the Congress uh, because of what was called the three R's, race, religion, and reds. Uh, If you were going to provide general aid, you ran into segregated schools in the South. Uh, Religion, would you give the general aid for uh, teachers to religious schools? And the Reds was a feel of too much federal control, like a communist system. So Kennedy could never get general aid, and the uh, argument for that died at that point, and then never has really come back until now. How did President Johnson then manage to get a big federal education bill through Congress? Well, Johnson was a master strategist, having been the head of the Senate, and so he conceived of the idea that we're not going to have general aid, that we will uh, have aid for particular types of students, low-income students in this case uh, under Title I, and if those students are in private schools, we'll uh, give them some token aid for uh, books and transportation, but only if they're low-income students. So general aid dropped completely out of the picture, and the discussion turned to earmark grants for low-income students, handicapped students, students studying vocational education. And in this way, we circumvented the problems. The segregated schools went away under a federal edict, and the federal government ran the programs through the states in a major way, dampening the fear of excessive federal control. So... Senator Harris's proposal, this is salaries for teachers. It's not exactly like general aid, or would that be regarded as general aid, do you think? Yes, it's a general across-the-board policy to raise all salaries in all states up to a level with competitive and similar occupations. So it is a form of general aid, and I think it's exciting and bold in that it breaks a mold of an idea that the federal aid has to be just highly targeted to particular needs and pupils. So it's such a jump shift in the federal role with such large costs that I think it is running uphill against political barriers. Well, the Congress said 40 years ago that it would provide 40% of money for students with disabilities, Mike, and we've only seen a shrinking piece of that. In fact, it never reached 40%. Does that make you skeptical about a commitment here, too? Yes, it does, and it, it makes me wonder if you won't get federal control where the feds will specify that you have to get your salaries up to a particular level And then the federal government will come through with only a pittance of the money to pay for it. That's what happened with uh, George Bush and No Child Left Behind. He got all that federal control for only a billion more dollars. It was a tremendous payoff, but they left the schools holding the bag. In general, do you have any concerns about how this might intrude on local control? I I just think this particular proposal of trying to have federally set minimum or or whatever salaries is is a very complex issue that it just strikes me as as maybe an overreach. We now negotiate salaries locally, district by district, and they're all over the place. So if the federal government's going to provide all this money, it's going to want to audit that we're doing what they want us to do at the federal level. 
And so getting the federal government into the nuances of local salary differences, it really is a ramp up in federal control uh, as I see it over the long haul. And ultimately, education is a local and state responsibility. Any concerns that this might actually let states off the hook from stepping up and doing what they need to fund education adequately? Yes, uh, but given our current situation in California, we need revenue sources, I think, to carry forward on an adequate basis of funding. And so another revenue source like the federal government is very attractive. So you one has to calculate the, the federal money versus the federal control. And in the past, people have said, we'll take the money and deal with the control later. Okay. Well, we've been talking with Mike Kirst. Uh, thanks for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. That was Michael Kirst, who was the former state board president in California and also is an emeritus professor of education at Stanford. I also thought we would ask Dan Goldhaber, who is director of the Center for Education, Research, and Data at the University of Washington, for his thoughts. Dan is actually a close follower of what's happening in California. He wrote a paper for the Getting Down to Facts project last fall on the teacher shortage. And I asked him what he thought of Senator Kamala Harris's proposal and whether he thought it should be more targeted. I have a, a a researcher's reaction, and I have a reaction as as a political realist. My researcher's hat reaction. I think it's it is a good thing that we're focused on the issue of teacher pay because over a, again a very long stretch of time as a country we've increased the amount that is spent on K-12 education, and those increases have largely gone into hiring more people rather than raising teacher salaries. And it's not clear that those are the kind of right incremental decisions to make year after year after year. So I think that focusing on teacher salary is a, a good idea. But I do think that, you know, the way that salaries are increased really matters. And I guess I would say that there are things that one might hope for connected to increases in teacher salaries or, or at least the, the details of the salary increase. You know, differential pay for hard-to-staff subjects, maybe increased pay at the beginning of a teacher's career, so, it, you know, focused on the entry point into the profession, and increased pay for challenging schools. So where do you think these funds should be targeted towards? You've mentioned the high-need schools and high-need students, but where else do you think they should be targeted to? In the subject areas where it, it is hard to staff classrooms. Um, so there's lots of evidence that it is, for instance, much harder to staff the classrooms in STEM areas um, and in special education, probably for some different reasons. But regardless, there are fewer people sort of lined up for those kinds of jobs than there are for jobs in elementary education, for instance. So that would be one area. And then I think the other area is beginning teacher salaries. The proposal talks about the problems that can arise with teacher turnover, and I think that that is correct, that the churn of teachers 
in schools generally is harmful for student achievement, but there aren't a lot of 50-year-old teachers that are leaving the profession. So if you look at the, the evidence, and, and actually it's referenced in this proposal, it's beginning teacher attrition that is very, very high. So it makes sense, I, I believe, to target pay increases to the beginning of a teacher's career. Just let me press you on that a little bit because isn't the question of whether teachers are being compensated adequately one that affects all teachers, not just beginning teachers? You are suggesting that this would be mainly a recruitment issue. Wouldn't it also be an issue that for teachers to feel satisfied and motivated and so on that their salaries need to be bumped up? I'm sure that teachers across their entire career are concerned about these issues. But, you know, I do worry that you could be implementing a solution to a problem and implementing in a way that it's a mile wide and an inch deep and and not really targeting the areas of acute need. But I want to come back to the framing because you framed the question around what is good for teachers. And my perspective is that the, the question ought to be framed around what is best for students. And so oftentimes those two things, what's good for teachers and what's good for students, that is aligned. But if we have some you know, fixed pot of, of money, it, it might be best if it's not distributed to all teachers equally, that that may not be the best thing for drawing higher quality people into the teaching profession and ultimately changing the, the lives of students. That was Dan Goldhaber, director of the Center for Education, Research, and Data at the University of Washington. Well, Lewis, we'll see how this works out over time. I'm glad to see education being raised as a democratic primary issue. It's It beats the president's emphasis on building more Abrams tanks to win votes in Ohio. So I'm glad to see education out in the agenda. Well, we have to see how uh, Kamala Harris does. And will this issue have legs? I think that teachers, who are quite a representative block of Democratic voters and powerful influence, they'll be raising this issue for sure. And as we saw, not only Democratic voters. I think in a lot of the red states, teachers are fed up. They want more money. They want to be treated with more respect. Yes, you're right. Let's move on to another segment of the education system, higher education, and the admission scandal, which is still unfolding across the state and the country. And this week, the California legislature, or at least some legislators, put forward a series of bills to try to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. Yes, there are a half dozen bills proposed by Assemblyman Phil Ting from San Francisco and Kevin McCarty from Sacramento, both Democrats. Tell us, what were the highlights, Lewis? Well, one of the bills tries to regulate the public universities, which, of course, the legislature does have some control over. It would require that students would only be admitted under the special admissions program with approval of three college administrators, which one of them would have to be the president or the chancellor of the university. It would also regulate these private admissions consultants, like the one who is at the center of the scandal. It would also set up an audit of the University of California's admissions process. There is a proposal that would potentially affect private colleges and universities as well. What's all that about? One of these bills would actually prohibit colleges, including private colleges, from getting Cal grants if they admitted students under these so-called legacy admissions or special preferences or the kind of thing that uh, if your parent donates money to set up a building or uh, some professorship that you would get that uh, special preference. So that would be a big deal 
if the state tried to step in and regulate admissions through using the power of the purse, or at least CalGrants, at places like Stanford, USC, and so on. We have to see how they respond to this. Yeah, probably not favorably for sure, but UC, for example, doesn't use any kind of donations or legacy in its admissions process, so it says. We'll have to see what this audit shows, because money does speak. And these universities are dependent on donations to keep going. As, as we've reported for so many years, the percentage of money coming from the state has declined. And so all these universities need outside money and support and donors. So uh, they are susceptible under the right conditions or the wrong conditions, should I say. There's another bill, actually a resolution, that uh, Assemblyman McCarty has put forward asking UC and CSU to evaluate the use of the SAT and the ACT as a condition for admission. That's right. The funny thing is they're already doing that. At least UC has been doing it for a couple of years. And so it's basically asking them to continue to do what it's doing. To look into this? Is that to, what? Yeah, to look into the SAT and ACT as a poor criterion for admissions. Is it wise? Is it culturally biased, as some have said? And so the question, though, is the legislature may be implying that, in fact, they should phase it out. And so there's some conflicting messages here, Lewis, because there is criticism of the ACT and SAT to be used in admissions. But at the same time, this week, the Assembly Education Committee passed a bill. It's back for the third time. It would give districts the option of replacing the Smarter Balance Test in the 11th grade, given to all 11th graders, with the SAT or ACT. And this has dozens of districts and superintendents behind it because they say, look, as long as there's an SAT and it's a gatekeeper to college, we want that gate open wide for all students. So they want to be able to give it at the state expense to all students and have a state pay for it. Right now, three dozen districts are giving it at their own expense to all the students, and they're taking both Smarter Balanced and the SAT, which is duplicative. Uh, and just to clarify, the Smarter Balance is the standardized test that students have to take in the 11th grade based on the Common Core. And there's been this push for several years to replace that with the SAT. So where is that going now? Because now there's this cloud over the SAT and ACT. Well, it's a cloud if one looks at it that way. The way Patrick O'Donnell, who is sponsoring the bill, says it's sort of like blaming the bank for a robbery. He's saying, look, you can deal with this minor incidence of fraud. That's a security issue. But the issue of access for all students is a bigger issue. And so he's saying, look, let's be able to give the SAT or ACT, whichever. Let all districts do that. And then many districts like Long Beach and San Jose Unified are using the PSAT to prepare for the SAT. They're giving Saturday classes. In fact, San Jose is bringing in Kaplan test prep that wealthy parents use into the classroom to do the same kinds of courses. It's a great equalizer. They want the ability to do that. Making this a requirement in the 11th grade would mean that many more students would be better prepared to take those tests. And what we've seen as a result of this scandal, no secret to anybody who's been following this, is that wealthier parents can afford to send their kids to these expensive preparation programs, get private tutors, and so on. So all kids should have that opportunity, unless you're going to do away with the tests altogether. And that, of course, has potential problems, too. I spoke with David Coleman, who is president of the College Board, which administers the SAT, and he said... Look, I've never said that the SAT is the best predictor or the only predictor for college. I think it should be used with grades. 
combined, and it's a pretty good predictor that way. He said it's kind of like a check on each other. Now, if you take away the SAT and you leave grades, he said, imagine the pressure on teachers, particularly at wealthy schools and private schools. If grades become the main measure of whether or not you get to college, there's going to be tremendous pressure to change those grades and have the kind of grade inflation, which in fact is already occurring in, frankly, the wealthier districts across the country. Well, there are arguments on both sides, I have to say. On a personal note, I'm in the thick of it right now. My daughter's about to take the SAT in a couple of weeks. She works really hard at school and gets pretty good grades. And I really just wonder why we should have this test that, I don't know how it's related to what she's learned in school, have an impact on whether she gets into college. It seems to me the reward should be the work you do in school. And uh, I think we will leave it there. And that wraps it up for This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our music is brought to you from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Thanks to our producer, Kobe McDonald. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another 100. Mm-hmm.